the world refers to it as an oops, a mistake, alternative thinking, someone else's fault, a result of bad influences, or might even say, jokingly, the devil made me do it. But the Bible says it's evil. Disobedience, transgression, iniquity, lawlessness, trespasses, ungodliness, unrighteousness, wickedness, debauchery, and even unholy. The synonyms give us better understanding of this fatal disease and serious curse of our human species that God plainly calls sin. It's not an easy topic. Let's go to the Lord and ask for wisdom this morning. Can we do that? God, it is sin that will send countless numbers of people into separation from you in a place called hell. God, that's serious. It is sin that keeps believers from really having the fellowship with you that they ought to have. And to you, God, that is serious. God, I pray as we talk about this topic of sin this morning, that you would speak to each one of us. God, it would be your voice and not mine. God, this is your word, it's not mine. So God, we ask you to use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to challenge us. Let us be different today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The origin of the word sin, you may have heard me say this before, but I want to say it again. The origin of the word sin actually comes from an archery term. In the modern use of bows and arrows, we use telescopic technology to score arrow hits. But in earlier days, there would be a spotter who would stand to the side and wait for the archer to draw his bow and fire his arrow and then walk out to the target. And if the arrow was not on the bullseye, off to the side... Uh, one side or the other, he would holler back to the, the archer, you've sinned. In other words, you've missed the bullseye. And that gives us a little better understanding when we go to verses like Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short. For all have missed the bullseye and fall short of that bullseye, the glory of God. None of us can ever measure up to the glory of God because we've all sinned. The law that God set up was the first thing that proved to man that we could never measure up. It was never put in place for man to stand back and say, I'll keep this one, I'll keep this one, I'll be good enough, I don't need God, I can earn salvation, I'm good. No, it was to show man that there was no way he could ever make it on his own. Jesus then came and fulfilled that law and became the new measuring stick. And still, we cannot measure up to the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. We have all sinned. We have synonyms. We have the the origin of, of the word. What about a definition? Sin is anything that does not express or conform to the holy character of God as expressed in his moral law. Simply put, it is anything that displeases our God. 
As we look at these foundational things of sin, there is a foundational question we can ask. It is this, where does sin come from? Where does sin come from? We know it began with Adam and Eve and their disobedience for mankind. They were influenced by the serpent, but ultimately made the choice to disobey and so pass the curse on, the curse of sin on to all mankind. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam, and death through sin, so, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let us be clear, sin does not come from God. James 1, 13 to 17 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It goes on further to say in that passage that every good gift, every perfect gift, comes from the Father. Not only does sin not come from God, but all the good gifts only really come from God. It makes that distinction. And it says there is no variation or change in Him. He does not bring sin. He is really the only one that brings about good. And the Scripture teaches us that there are three sources of sin. You may be tested on this, so pay attention. The three sources... Well, you will be tested on this in life, so be ready. (laughs) But I may test you at the end on what I'm about to say. The three sources of sin are this. The influences of the world, our own cursed flesh, and the temptations of the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. This morning, I want us to look at some misconceptions of sin. And see how the scripture answers these misconceptions. So get ready to uh, let your fingers move quickly through the scripture. So if you would, find first of all John chapter 9. I have recently did a message on this, an entire message, but I want to touch base on it again. While you're turning, let me make some distinctions in sin as moral evil and as natural evil. Sometimes we get those a little confused. Some examples of moral evil, we could list them. Uh, They would be listed maybe in your mind as as murder, adultery, stealing, lying, etc. We could go on and on. Anything that we do to violate God's moral law. But some examples of natural evil, which are defined as awful things that happen in nature, some of these could could be natural disasters like tsunamis or earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires. We hear about them. You turn on the news and you you hear about them all over the world happening. We could also include health conditions like uh, in natural evil like a birth defect or, or cancer. There are many others. Moral evil is personal rebellion against God, but it is also what has brought natural evil into the world. Think about that for a moment. Our sin, our disobedience, is what has brought natural evil into the world. But here's the tough question. Is every negative thing that happens to a person a result of personal sin? That's a tough question, isn't it? Look at John 9, starting in verse 1. 
As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. There's your birth defect. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin, not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So why was this man born blind? Jesus says here that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wait a minute. This man was born blind. I want you to think about that for a moment. If we as a church had someone in our congregation that was expecting, we were all excited, and they went over to the hospital, and we got the call, hey, the baby's on the way, and we're excited, and that family had this new child, and the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, I have bad news. Your baby's been born blind. There is not a person in this room who would stand back and say, that is the blessing of God. Folks, that's hard. That's what this family dealt with. From day one, this person was blind. And Jesus says, why? That the works of God might be displayed in him. See, it was common belief in that day. It's very common belief in this day. That the birth defect of blindness, other birth defects, are not blessings of God. There has to be someone at fault. But we have been conditioned that our definition of God's blessing and His cursing is about what we think blessing and cursing is all about. Which most of the time is America's definition of blessing and cursing. We have to be careful That when seemingly bad things happen, it is not always a mean, judgmental, angry God that finally lets judgment fall. It might actually be a blessing that ultimately allows the work of God to be put on display. That's hard. But how many times in the scripture did God take an absolute terrible, awful situation and bring himself glory through it? Think about that. Over and over. Think about the situation around his very own son. In his son's crucifixion, his friends lied about him, turned their back on him. They trumped up charges that were false. They lied against the very son of God to bring him into a false, illegal trial. And they murdered the son of God on a cross. But God took these things that are awful, in our minds and gave the greatest blessing of salvation to any of those who believe. That's hard. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. I told you we'd be flipping around. We're going to do that. Turn to Hebrews 12. On, on the flip side of this, does God allow his judgment, his chastening, his discipline to fall on those that are disobedient? Sure he does. Yes, he does. Hebrews 12, verse 6. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have uh, participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Can I throw in a free nugget here? Parents, particularly particularly this is addressing dads, fathers, there is absolutely nothing in this passage that tells you to discipline your children in such a way that they like you. Can I get an amen? Amen. In fact, when you look at verse 11, look at it. It says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. There is not a person in this room who likes to face discipline. But can I say it's needful? But what does verse 9 say? It says that we're to discipline our sons. This includes daughters. You're not off the hook, ladies. Our sons and daughters so that they will like us? No. So that they will what? Respect. Respect us. While we're here, let me read another one of many in the scripture. Proverbs 13, 24 says this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Thank you, Dad, for loving me. (laughs) Hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Isn't it our goal as a parent to see our children grow into adulthood, prepared to deal with the temptations, with the disappointments that this sin-cursed world has to offer? Is that not our goal? Folks, it's God's goal for His children. And at times, it requires His discipline. Why? Because He hates us? No, because He absolutely loves us and wants us to miss the consequences, the load of consequences that sin carries for us. My point is this. Be careful in the way you view the blessing and cursing and discipline of God. God's way of bringing himself glory and God's way of keeping us on track may not always happen with a love that is warm and fuzzy but rest in the knowledge that His will and His glory are the ultimate end. Amen? Have you ever heard this about sin? You know, my sin's my business. I'm not hurting anybody else. It's all about me, and I'm going to do it, and it's not going to affect anybody else. Guys, is that true? That is not true. Even though sin is personal rebellion against God's law, it usually, almost always, affects outsiders. I want you to turn over to Psalm 51. Turn to Psalm 51, a familiar passage coming from a familiar story, 
Many of you remember the story of King David and Bathsheba. Let me review that quickly as you turn there. David should have been out to war. He stayed home. One night while walking on his rooftop, he sees Bathsheba and should have turned and kept walking. But he sends for her. And when the king sends for you, you don't question it. You respond, you go. She went. King David ends up committing adultery with her. She is now expecting, and he is in big trouble. To cover his tracks, he invites Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battlefield and tells him to go and be with his wife in hopes that this child will appear to be Uriah's child. But Uriah doesn't go to his house. He sleeps at the front door of the palace because all his comrades are on the battlefield risking their lives. There is no way that his conscience will let him do this. David finds out that his plan hasn't worked. So the next night, he invites Uriah to eat with him and gets him drunk and tells Uriah again, go home. But but again, Uriah refuses for his own conscience sake of his friends risking their lives. And I find it funny that this man, even drunk, has more moral fortitude than the king. David's plot is ruined. But wait, not yet. David writes a letter to the military leader, Joab. He tells Joab to put Uriah in the area of battle that is most dangerous. At the right time, have your men pull back from him and let him die in battle. And then ironically, rolls up the letter, seals it, gives it to his faithful soldier, Uriah, to take and deliver himself, his own death letter, to Joab. It happens just as David plans. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba in as his wife. Not only is David not found out, he looks like a kind and generous king. It's all over. It's done. Right? Wrong. God reveals the whole thing to his prophet Nathan. Nathan goes into the king and exposes David. David is Psalm 51 is where we hear how David feels with this sin on his shoulders. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment behold I was brought forth in iniquity there's the curse and in sin did my mother conceive me there's the curse behold you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I want you to think about who got caught up in the effects of David's sin. There was obviously Uriah who was killed, Bathsheba, David's servants, Joab, the soldiers that pulled back from their comrade, the enemy that ended up killing Uriah, Nathan, the child that would later be born and die a few days later. I'm sure there were many others who knew what was going on. The list goes on and on. And folks, that's how sin works. I'll just just do it this one time. No one will ever know. 
I'll do it in secret. Secret. It'll be over. It's no big deal. Satan whispers in our ear, but folks, sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. And our sin does affect more than just us. It affects all those who love and care about us. And most importantly, it affects our relationship with God who knows every sin, whether done in open or in secret. And it takes away all the joy and fellowship in that relationship to a holy God. Did you hear what David wrote? Did you hear the agony in what he wrote? In what he faced in his relationship and how he felt before God knowing that this sin was on his account? He felt horrible. Have you felt that guilt of sin in your life? It's horrible. It's not a happy place to be. You know, it's interesting that we've listed all those people that were affected by David's sin. But look again what he says in verse 4. Against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is saying that he is ultimately responsible to God for his sin. Yeah, he, he sinned against other people. Yes, he needed to go back and apologize to them. But folks, he realized that all of our sin, he realized that all of his sin is in reality something we're going to give account for before God. It's that serious. And most of these sins that we see in this story of David were sins of commission. That is, I plan these things out, I am willfully going against God's law, and I do them. Sin of commission. But there are sins of omission. James 4.17 says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And it's interesting, when you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and look at the first verse of this story of David and Bathsheba, it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and a servant with him in all Israel. Could we say that this little sin of omission, not doing what he was supposed to be doing by staying home and not going to war, was really the start of this whole awful situation? We think, you know, that's something I just didn't do that I was supposed to do. That's not that, that's a little sin. That snowballed into the whole situation that we just talked about in the life of David. Which leads us to our next misconception. Is there such a thing as a little sin? We use the term white, little white lie. We've used that one. Or we distort the truth. Or we only give part of the story just enough to stay out of the, the hot seat. You may have heard this saying, a half truth is a whole lie. What does the Bible say about little sins? Turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, toward the back of your Bible. Here James is addressing the sin of partiality. That is giving honor to someone who is well-to-do and giving dishonor to someone because they are poor. It's a very common thing. In, in, in comparison to sin, is it really that big of a deal? Listen to the passage, verse 8 of James chapter 2. 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. All of us, probably at some time or another, have shown partiality. Whether we mean to do it in some ways or don't. We've done that. But what is James' point here? Look at verse 10. This is his point. It's, a, it's not really a big deal. We think of partiality. But it says this in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one little point in context, like partiality, he has become accountable for all of it. In God's eyes, sin is sin, and any sin brings our guilt. Now, we sometimes grade sin based on the load of consequences that particular sin carries, right? Obviously, murder carries a much higher sentence or punishment than cheating on a math test. But folks, both are sin. Both bring about our guilt. Greater punishment also comes to those who know what they're supposed to do and don't do it. I want you to listen to Luke. You don't have to turn here. But listen to Luke uh, 12, 47, what it says. It says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not deserve a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is Jesus' words. What is he saying? Does ignorance uh, take, us, take the punishment away? No. If we're sinning, we're going to get a punishment. Now, it's going to be a lighter beating than the one who knew and does it anyway. Folks, I want you to think about our lives here at Pitts Baptist Church as believers. Do we hear week in and week out the truths of this word? We do. Do we go to Sunday school and Sunday morning worship and Sunday evening worship, Wednesday night, and study the word and know what the word of God says? What does that say to us? Do we stand here freely, unlike other countries, and open this precious word of God and study from it, not in secret, but in the open? Are we blessed to be able to do that? We are, but guess what? When I read that scripture right there, it tells me that we're going to be held accountable. That we're going to be held accountable, that we just don't let it go in one ear and out the other, that we listen to it, we hear it, and we apply it, and we have our life changed because of it, and we live by it. Not just talk about it. We live by it. Have we been given much? We have. So how do we talk to others about this issue of sin? How do we help others understand their condition? You know, we live in an environment that demands political correctness. No one wants a set of beliefs forced on them. And sadly... We as Christians need to admit that there are those out there that have identified themselves as Christians and have not spoken the truth in love. They've yelled the truth in hatred. And now anyone who speaks to the truth is, of, of sin is labeled as some type of hater. So what do we do? What do we do? Jesus began by building relationships with the lost. 
building relationships with the lost. He didn't go among sinners and start yelling and hollering and pointing. He began to build relationships with them. But many times what we do with good intention of staying protected from the world is surround ourselves only with other believers. Sure, our best friends, those we yoke up with in business, those we date, those we marry, ought to be devout Christians. But God never said we shouldn't befriend unbelievers. But do we even put ourselves in a position to do that? Think about your day. Where do you rub shoulders with unbelievers? And guys, it's really hard for pastors. We're involved in the work of the church all day. But there are places. I think of maybe the gym in the morning. Those people that stand next to me every morning at the same time on that treadmill. Can I begin to develop relationships with them? Sure I can. Sure I can. And I talk to a lot of them. What about that store clerk, that, that store you frequent at least once a week? That same clerk stands behind that counter every week when you go by. And you look at their name tag. You may even know their name now. Have you begun to establish a relationship with that person? What about that neighbor that lives next door and you know when you're leaving for church on Sunday morning, their car's there and it's the same place when you get back from church on Sunday morning. You're not trying to judge, but that person's not involved in church. Have you begun to establish a relationship when you see them out in the yard? Maybe randomly, when you, ladies, when you make some cookies, you make an extra batch and you walk it over. Or you have too many tomatoes, they're going to go bad, you can't eat them all. You take a, a bucket of tomatoes over to their house. You begin to establish a relationship with that neighbor that you know. You don't know, but you have a pretty good idea, doesn't know Jesus. Are we making opportunities to rub shoulders with unbelievers and share the love of Jesus with them? Or do we stay inside our walls of the church? Do we stay in the influence of, of believers because we're fearful to get outside that? Jesus never said for us to do that. Yeah, the closest friends need to be. We need to get out. We need to share that. We need to put ourselves in a position to do that. When that person begins to know our heart, when that person watches our actions and hears what comes out of our mouth and particular words and innuendos that do not come out of our mouth, they will see a, and let me say this, a genuine, attractive difference in our lives and will be willing to listen then to what we have to say. Do you think it matters the way we live our lives as Christians in front of unbelievers. Folks up front, it's all that matters to them. Because they're not going to listen to anything we say if our lives and our actions don't measure up. And guys, that's hard. You say, Kevin, you said it at the beginning, we can't be perfect. We all fail. We all make bad choices. Guess what? You're right. You're right. I said that at the beginning of the message. But you know what? God never asked us to be perfect. But he asked us to be blameless. That means I'm willing to recognize my failures. That means I'm willing to own up to what I've done. That means I'm willing to go to that person and apologize and say, I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? I am sorry for what I've done. That's part of being real and different, and genuine, and attractive. 
to a sin-cursed world. Can I stop here for a moment and say that maybe before we try and see unbelievers deal with the issue of sin, that we as believers deal with it? That may mean that we get on our face before a holy God like David did, that we plead for God's mercy, that we acknowledge our sin before Him, that we allow Him to clean out our heart, that we don't go to Him, as it says later in the chapter of chapter 51, Psalm 51, I encourage you to read it, with a sacrifice of a burnt offering, this little token, but that we go to Him with the sacrifice of a broken spirit. One of a broken and contrite, severely helpless heart. 1 John 1.9 says that if, I, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When is the last time you were broken over your sin? hard the next thing in that relationship to the unbeliever is to level the playing field to let them know that there is nothing you have done to accomplish the work of salvation that has happened in you Christ did all the work on the cross and it is only by his grace and you receiving his gift and believing on what he has done that you are his child I think sometimes when we go to folks They see our lifestyle. Maybe it's different. We don't say cuss words. We don't tell dirty jokes. We go to church on Sunday. They feel inferior. But guys, express to them, it is only by by God's grace. I am cursed with sin just like you are. The playing field is level. Let them know that God wants to have a personal relationship with them like he does with you. Let them know that he is ready to free them from the guilt and shame of their sin through the power of forgiveness like he has done for you. Then make an offer to this friend. If you ever want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I would love to show you what the Bible says. Boy, when we say that, what does it do? It takes the authority off of me and it puts it on the authority of the Scripture. Because here's the truth, guys. It's not Kevin's gospel It's not Pitt's Baptist Church's gospel. It's not Baptist gospel. It's God's gospel and God's message. And when people go to God's word, they see that it's based on his authority. It's important that we do that. They may want to know right then. They may want to go away and think about it. You let the Holy Spirit do his work in their heart. It's not you that saves them. You are a messenger with God's message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates and saves that person. It's not you. Pressure off. If they want to know right then, or they want to think about it, I've written some key verses on your study sheet right there. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10, 9 and 10. I would... Recommend that you take those verses and write them on a three-by-five card. Memorize them. Some of you may have already done that. There's some of the key verses your kids are learning every week in Awana. When you have a, underline them in your Bible, you may go and that person, they say, I want to know right now. I want to hear what you're talking about right now. Let me go to the car and get my Bible. 
and you know those verses, you know where they are, you've got them underlined in your Bible, and you can take them through in that order and show them what it means to be a believer. Let them know that's based on God's authority. If they're not ready right then, write them down. Write the references down. Maybe not the whole verse, but the reference, those four. And hand them to in a piece of paper and say, go home and look them up in your Bible. You read them. See what God impresses upon your heart. And as they walk away, be praying, God, please use the power of your word, the power of the Holy Spirit to, to get to that person's heart so that they understand the truth of what salvation is all about, who they are, who Christ is, what he's done for them. And then be sure to go back to them and say, hey, maybe privately say, hey, did you read those verses? I read them. What'd you think? Let's talk about it. Hey, great. You want to go to lunch? Go talk about them. What is wrong with building a relationship like that? That person's not going to look at you and say, you're being judgmental. You're being a person who thinks they're better. No, you're not. You're showing love to that person to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, we need to remember that sin has cursed mankind. We get frustrated with the world and the way they behave. But can the unrighteous act righteous? So many times we look at the unregenerate world with judgmental eyes. When those eyes should be like Jesus' eyes. The eyes that wept over a lost Jerusalem. To have Jesus' mouth that said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. To have Jesus' hands, feet, and side that were pierced for the very ones that shook their fists in the face of the Son of God. As he hung there on the cross, he didn't deserve. Can we look past surface actions and hate sin that much? And in turn, love the sinner that much? That's what Jesus did as he hung on the cross. I would ask you this morning to bow your head with me. I want to ask you a few things. What is God saying to you this morning? I want you to think about you right now. We spent a lot of time this morning talking about how to reach out to an unbeliever. But maybe you're seated here this morning and that's your condition. Maybe this is the first or second time you've been at Pitts Baptist Church or maybe you've been here Almost all your life. But in your heart, maybe the Lord is speaking to say, you know what? You've never made that decision. For the person that's been here forever, maybe you've been playing games with God. And you think, well, everybody thinks I'm a Christian. But the Holy Spirit's saying to your heart right now, you need to trust me. You really don't know me. You're playing games with me. We want to ask you to come forward this morning, maybe. There are people here who would love to talk to you, who would show you from the Scripture how you can know that you're a believer. Believer, is he shining a light on some unconfessed sin that you're hanging on to? That sin that has put a serious wedge between your relationship with God, do you need to confess that and repent? Why don't you set that sin at the altar this morning? and walk away from it. Do a 180, repent, and walk away from that sin. No matter how far you think you've gotten away from God, He is really just one step behind you waiting to hear you confess so that He can restore you.
This invitation is open to you. What about those of us that are not burdened for the lost or have allowed that burden to fade? Do you need to ask God to ignite that burden in you again this morning? To give you the courage to live a godly life in front of your circles of influence and then have the opportunity to share with your mouth that awesome message of the gospel. I want to warn you, don't ask God for it if you don't want to see it happen because he'll make it happen. And you'll need to have his courage to open your mouth and to share the gospel.